All right, you guys, welcome back. Welcome back to the Book of Joe podcast. I know it's been some time to be specific. It's been since November 13th before the Thanksgiving American holiday and even after uh, the Christmas holiday for many of you, here I am, right? And so I just want to take this moment and opportunity to just make sure I reiterate that if I don't have anything to say, I will not be saying anything. And I think that's important to remain authentic to how the spirit moves in my life in terms of what I need to share on a on a larger level like this. And so I just want you guys to know that. And I want to thank you for continuing to um, listen in when I do pop up with something from the spirit, because um, to me, that's just how it goes with me. Sometimes I have a whole lot to say and I'll be week after week. I'll be sometimes day after day. And then other times it'll be like it's been um, a few months since or a few weeks rather from when you've last heard from me but it's a it's a good time to to just reiterate that fact so that um, our expectations of me are are fair right because if I don't have anything to say I am not going to just fill your ears with with nothingness for my own pride and selfish gain to keep this podcast in some popular fashion that's not what we're going to do for the glory of God amen so I do have actually two things that ended up dropping on my spirit. One is actually for a group of women that I, I am running with called Helpers One of Another. If you guys are interested in following them, they are on Facebook.com slash H1OA Global. Um, so H the number one, O the letter, A the letter, and Global. You can follow them. They're doing wonderful works in, um, in the world for God. And um, and they want to continue to do so. And a lot of it is behind the scenes. But if you're looking for a way to bless somebody, you can get involved with my sisters and myself in that group. And so the message that I am um, assigned to give to them, which actually is for all of our sisters in the spirit and even our brothers can benefit from this is called the handoff. And I wanted to start the podcast off with that. And the handoff, it stems from this moment that I had in the car with my husband. We were on our way to pick up our son, Legend, and I was talking about active faith indirectly. And what I said in so many words was that sometimes the longer we spend dwelling on an issue in prayer, the longer it takes for that issue to get resolved because we don't necessarily turn it over to God after we make our request to him. So in the book, The Seer's Path, which one of my big sisters gave to me, the author talks about different glimpses into the operations of heaven. Now, in one of those glimpses, she says that she saw a mailroom and there were couriers, angel couriers in limbo with packages waiting to be delivered, atten attentively waiting to deliver their packages to the people of God. And I was thinking in that moment in the car, I wonder why and what's the holdup, right? Because I know that God is eager to bless us and grant us the de desires of our heart, but yet so many of us never receive them those desires or we don't receive them in full right and so I said to myself why is that and then it just kind of fell on me in the spirit and it said how can God treat the wound if you don't take your hand off of it to see what needs to be done to it so like the patient who needs stitches we do pray right bent over in agony with our hands over the opening to stop the blood from pouring out right to keep the infection from seeping in we pray Right. And our prayers stop any further damage to that wound, but they do not possess the power to heal. 
not on their own. They create this atmosphere that's best prepared for healing to take place and for the leader of healing, our healer, to do his job. So yes, pray, 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 yes. But once you make it to the hospital, up the elevator, to the surgery ward, and under those big bright lights, you gotta take your hand off it and hand it off to your doctor to whom your prayers have brought you, right? So that was just the icing for today's message. But tonight's message is actually about where I ended up after receiving this message because it took me on a journey to seek out the proof that God really wants to give us our heart's desire. And that just took me on a whole nother journey to this beautiful message about Esau that I don't think I've ever really had revealed to me in such a way. All right. And so the message for real, for real for this podcast is called the one, the twin and the shame. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we just come to you right now in the name of your beautiful son, Yesha. While we come to you right now, we say thank you. We say thank you for being a healer. Father God, we say thank you for your love. We say thank you for your consistent grace and mercy, God. We thank you that we can rely on you, that our active faith is sometimes just standing back, delivering the prayer, the request, and standing back believing that it will come to pass because you are a good, honest, just, fair, merciful, and kind God. And if we ever need proof, you've delivered us messages that we can find in people that have been made up to look like your enemy, like Esau. And we can see how you handled him and still see your love, Lord God. We can see the way that you activate your love no matter what we do. God, we see that this whole thing is all about the heathen. At the end of the day, it's about getting those who don't necessarily obey a specific religion to understand your love even more. Lord God, we understand that you, you sent your son not to condemn this world, but to save it, God. And we thank you for that. So we can sing your praises in repetition. We can be redundant in all of your praises and all of your glory and all of your honor because you are going to always be good. But Lord God, we receive the fact that sometimes we have to pray and let that thing go. That a redundant prayer is not always necessary when we have activated faith, God. So I thank you for that message right now. And I thank you for the message that's about to go forth to deepen our understanding of your love and your character in concerns with Esau. Lord God, I pray that the way that you delivered it to me is the way that I deliver it to your people in the sound of my voice and that they would be blessed in this new understanding and in and in this understanding be able to bring their hearts closer to you. I ask that you have your way in this moment. I ask that you bless those in, my, in the sound of my voice who are listening right now. I ask that you do what you do best, which is show us your love. And we ask all these things in the name of Yeshua. Amen. This is the book of Joe, my book. Let's go deep inside where the sea People stop reading the Bible. Let's open up the Exodus 28 to 11. All around the world they don't understand it. Glory to God. There are so many promises in this book. We got to get back to telling the truth. John 16, 33. I told you these things so that you may have peace. Nah, I'm not a minister. <laughs> you can't hand down your faith. You gotta get your own. 
But people just need to see it from a different perspective. God really is good all the time. Remember the God says, if he loved me, keep my commandments. I first ask myself, who's speaking? Did you trick you? And then everything sounds different from there. But God does not lie. I'm Jill, and this is what I found in the Bible. All right, y'all, so let's get it. Um, Earlier, I mentioned that God is eager to bless you. So let me prove that first, because many of us think that God teases us with our desires, right? And he really doesn't. He has no interest in teasing you. God is not like you, and he's not like your petty haters either, right? So we can go to Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, right? And it says, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse that there might be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Okay, so the letters when I read it were written in red. So that's God saying, bring me the best of you, your tithe, is the best of you. That's a confusion of the church sometimes where we talk about the tithe being your first fruit, but they talk about it in money terms almost always, right? And that comes from the Shang Dynasty, just a little background. That comes from the Shang Dynasty history of, of, and even probably before that, where there are plots of farmland were divided up into ninths, actually, not even tenths. And one ninth would go to the actual um, gated kingdom right? The kingdom behind the wall to support that kingdom because that kingdom provided the military that protected the farmers outside of the gates, right? So you had to feed them because they didn't have time to farm because they were protecting you outside so you could farm from any invaders. So that's basically similar to how the kingdom of heaven is supposed to be taught to have been in operation or to be in operation of when they request your tithe from you is that because the kingdom provides you the covering based of the saints that come to cover you by doing God's work. You allow them to eat and feed them through your, your, your first fruit, right? Through a ninth or if you were in Shang dynasty in China or a 10th, if you got into this Christianity situation. However, the tithe of the Bible in the spirit is your first fruit, meaning who you are. The, the first fruit can be the start of your day. You know, and my husband is the one who kind of extra brought, brought that up to me because he's a powerful tither. But he also was very clear with me and our family about the first fruit not always having to be money. It could just be the best of you, the first part of your day, the, the first moment. Everything, you know, the, the best while it's still intact before it's tired, the refreshed. Right. So let's go with that. All right. So it's saying, bring ye all the tithes, bring me all the best of you to the storehouse, which we've talked about in the past as being heaven or, or the body of, of God. Right. Bring it in so that it can be meat. Right. So he's saying, bring me the best of you so that I have the best of you to work with something of substance to work with. Right. If you give me the best of you, the meat of you, he says, test me, prove me now here with go ahead. See. Right. 
see if I don't bless you so much. Right? He says, I'm going to pour it out. See if I don't bless you so much that you can't even contain it. All right? So he, he, he ain't trying to just hit you off with a little something, something. For you bringing him the best of you, he's going to bless you so much you, it just overflow. He's going to pour it out once you. He's going to rain down, shower a blessing upon you. All right? That shows his willingness, his eagerness, just for you doing the smallest thing of bringing your first fruit, your best portion of yourself to him. Okay? So, that's just what I needed to do in order to make sure y'all understand that when I say to go ahead and hand off that prayer to him, God is in no business to make you wait for the thing. Okay? That's, he, yeah, sometimes we have to wait on the Lord because other pieces need to come together. But he's not holding it from you as a punishment for anything that you're doing. If you brought your best self to him, if you brought yourself as true and as real to him as possible, he will bless you even if your truth, which we're about to find out, is less than what he sees in you. And I'm going to prove that to you right now with what we're talking about. Because <laughs> Malachi is really opening up, remembering things about Esau, right? And Esau is a story that we can talk to God about or talk to God from about not having the right kind of self-esteem. And God's still blessing us anyway. All right. So let's go here. Let, let's go. It says, uh, so he says he's going to pour it out and he can't even contain it. Now that we already solved that mystery, this was a message that was given to Malachi to deliver to who? Y'all know I always like to know who is speaking and who they talking to, right? So Malachi is a messenger, right? He is a messenger, which is the title of his name, who is delivering this message to the people of God, right? He is talking to the priest of Israel in this moment. Okay. And so in verse one, it says he speaks to God's people and it's in a time where they feel a little distant from God or where they're trying to, where they're questioning God a little bit, which is as we often do when we have prayer on our heart, when we need to pray, we feel a little, we need to be closer to God, right? I need to talk to you, ask you for your guidance, especially today when my life is so cloudy. Come on, Yolanda Adams, sing that song. That's what it's about, right? That's when we go and talk to God most. So here we go. Verse two. Right. Remember, we're in we're in Mal we're in Malachi and we're on uh, now we're on chapter one. All right. Verse two. And it says, I have loved you. These words are in red. So God is saying to Israel, I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein has that hast thou loved us? All right. How? How have you loved us? Is what, the, what y'all are saying back. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob and hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage to waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Right? God is saying, that's what y'all think of me right now. He's saying, he's saying, <laughs> he's addressing how God did make a distinction between Jacob and Esau in the way that he handled Esau who is also Edom. But what does Edom say about God right now after this allegation from his own people? Because his people are saying, how could you love us if you broke our brother down this way, if you destroyed our brother? Aren't we all the same family? We got the same daddy. We got the same mama. 
So how you love us and you and you hurt Esau this way, right? So God is addressing this allegation and he's clarifying for them what really happened with, with Esau. In verse four, he says, y'all are saying this, but in verse four, whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down and they shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. All right. So what he is saying is y'all said I tore them down. Right. But they are saying, yeah, we're poor, but we will rebuild. Right. He's saying y'all see a people falling by my hand, but they see an opportunity to serve me. They see an opportunity to be the border or end or extent of where wickedness will reach. A people who will be against whoever God has indignation for forever. That will be their true destiny. Yeah, I brought them down from their high place. But people are going to call, call them the border of wickedness, where the wickedness stops. Right? People are going to say that they're the people against whom the Lord hath indignation for. All right. That's who they're going to be forever. That will be their true destiny. But the Israelites don't understand this. Esau is supposed to be an heir to the covenant of Abraham, right? In their eyes, right? They feel like in this moment, if Esau was broken down by God, then surely some of them are going to be broken down too. And we're not going to reap the promises either. So God is addressing them because he's not that type, right? What he says is true. And Esau does have an inheritance coming to him. Just not Jacob's inheritance, okay? And so he summarizes for them what really happened in Edom. Verse 6, right? He says, a son honoreth his father. And a servant, his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear or respect? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you. Who is you, O priest, that despise my name? And ye say, wherein, how have we despised thy name? So God is trying to figure out what kind of God do y'all priests think that I am? When y'all think the most ungodly answers for your questions and you get me mixed up every time. Y'all sitting here really telling my people that I harmed Esau, that I broke Esau down, that I beat Edom up. And that's not really what I, what happened. That's not what happened. And he's getting on these priests right now. In verse seven, he says, ye, the priests, right? Ye offer polluted bread Upon my altar. And ye say how. Right. Wherein have we polluted thee. You. How have we polluted you God. In that you, you say. In that ye say right. The, the table of the Lord. Is contemptible. So by you doing that. You're saying that my table. Is despicable or deserving of hate. Because that's what contemptible means. 
We're talking about bread. We're talking about the body. We're talking about life. We're talking about the fact that the bread, that the life that you give, the altar of God is polluted, priests, or defiled. That's how the King James Version defines it. So what's God really saying? He's saying when you priests misunderstand him, you pollute the flock. You pollute the people. You pollute my bread. Right? They have this misinterpretation of my character. And most importantly, they misinterpret my love for them. Right? They cannot see me the way they should. They are now blind to my kingdom because of the way y'all teach. And they will seek it without ever even knowing when they have arrived in it. Right? Which is what Edom has prepared for them. Right? So what, <laughs> what I did to Esau, God is saying, was for them. It was for you. It was for Israel. And if you cannot see it, Surely they cannot see it for the Bible mentions. This would happen in the prophets, Isaiah chapter six, verse 10, Jeremiah chapter five, verse 21, and in Ezekiel chapter 12, verse two, that's all old Testament. But then it God is same God, then same God. Now he also brings it to the new Testament and really has it uh, spoken about when we get into Matthew chapter 13, verse 15, Acts chapter 28, verse 27, Romans chapter 11 verse 8 they all speak to how the people of God have eyes that don't see as a result of these mistakes right here in Malachi where the priests have misinterpreted the heart of God and taught people to fear him for reasons that they don't deserve to have to fear right and how God feels about it is present in verse 8. And he's talking to the priest still. He says in verse 8. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? He's saying if you don't understand what you're giving yourself up for, then how is that fair to you? God is not a bully, y'all. He is nothing negative or unkind. So if the blind give themselves to him without understanding, without insight from the spirit, how is that a good thing? He's saying the same for the sick or for the handicapped. And this is why we opened up a few chapters um, in explaining that God, we opened up, sorry, we opened up the chapter explaining that God would love the substance of you, the meat of you, the best foot forward of us, the tithe of our lives. He wants the best of us. How is the sick, the lame, the blind, the best we can offer, Right. He wants the best so that he so that we can be used to feed his glory. Hence why he compares us to fruit like bread and meat. If he has the best of you, the substance will be there and he can work with that for his glory and receive. And then we'll in turn receive so much of his blessing onto us that we cannot even contain it. All right. But let me back myself up a little bit because I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you all everything you all need to see this. Right. But he continues in verse eight after he says, and if ye offer up the blind for sacrifice, isn't an evil. He goes on to say, and if ye offer up the lame and sick, is it not evil? Go ahead. Offer it now to thy governor. He says, will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person? God says, try that on your job with all your earthen authorities. Go try to give up uh, uh, the worst of yourself or the, or the, the least you have to offer to your job 
Try giving it to them to work with and run their whole business off of and see if they'll appreciate you. See if you'll make employee of the month that way. See if you get blessings that way. But this is what you priests bring me, says God, when you slack on my people, when you misinterpret my will in my heart. All right. So y'all got to remember that all of this is happening before the Messiah comes. So people's internal relationship with God through that indwelling of the Holy Spirit is not activated yet. But it is because the priests have failed in creating proper relationships with God and failed to bring him a people who seek God first. He's ready to implement a whole new system. All right. And that system is called Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah. All right. That's why he's done this. But let us read some more. All right. From this verse of Malachi, this this chapter in Malachi, so that we can do some fact checking against the word. All right. Verse nine says, and now I pray you beseech. I pray you beg God that he will be gracious unto us. Right. The people of God. This hath been by your means. This is your fault. You did this work, he's saying. So will he regard your persons? Will he hold you in high esteem for this, it says? So the Israelite priests, they got it all wrong. And there's a point where 85 of them were killed by Doeg, the Edomite. All right, and that's in 1 Samuel chapter 20 and chapter 22. So we have the Edomite, Doeg, slaying priests of Israel in this Bible. And he, Doeg doesn't have a big part, but if he's mentioned, he's important. And he represents Esau. And I'm going to prove this to you in a minute because we're going to get into the book of Obadiah. But I want to talk about how this Edomite, this son of Esau, slays Israel, Israel's priests. 85 of them to be exact on his own. Okay. Which is a treacherous act against his brother who is Israel, right? Jacob is Israel. Esau is Edom. Okay. So when you have an Edomite slaying 85 priests from Israel, there is a, a treason that happened. Okay. Just hold that for a second. Cause I'm going to give it to y'all. I'm going to give you all of this. And God is going to confirm this when we get into Obadiah. Just hold this as one of the acts that make him that make him handle Esau a certain way. All right. So had the priests not been slain, I don't know if the Israelites would have had these questions for God. Like how how could you love us after what you've done to Esau? Right. Uh, I don't know if they they would have. They would have really understood what was going on. Right. Because uh, for an Edomite to slay Israel's priest, it's a brother fighting a brother. So Esau, it's basically Esau fighting Jacob. And Jacob, we know from the story of Jacob and Esau, that Jacob and Esau have beef over a birthright. All right? That's the nature of their relationship. They're beefing. They came out beefing. Right? So God handles Edom. And that's what's being reflected on in Malachi. So... We need to know what happened in Edom, right? 
So the Edomites, they descended from Esau. And the Bible clarifies that. I'm not just giving you all this out of the top of my head. You can go to Genesis chapter 36, verse 1. And you can go to chapter 25, verse 30. And it makes it plain, and, and in many other chapters as well, that Esau, Jacob's twin brother, is Edom. All right? And so the Edomites are his children. Jacob, who is Israel, so the Israelites are his children acquires the birthright of the firstborn from Esau or Edom over a bowl of lentil soup, all right? Which is wild when you think about what Jacob inherited from his brother. And if we're going to be 100% honest, which is the way God likes it, he did this by lying, right? He obeyed his mother, Rebecca, who sent him into his father, Isaac to ask Isaac for the blessing by disguising himself as Esau, the firstborn, because Esau was going to renege on the fact that he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. And Rebecca, who favored her son Jacob, wanted Jacob to have it. All right. And so <laughs> we see. And everything that transpired afterward, that this is what God always wanted, right? And from Jacob's uh, actions, we can see that Jacob might have been the more mature brother, right? And he, he may have been the one who had the will to please God more, right? In fact, we're almost sure of that. So we end up being okay with this. But technically, all right, it was Esau's birthright, all right? So it's like your sibling graduated high school before you, but they have no plans to go to college and they live a life in the streets and they stress your family out. So even though they promised that or the family promised that they were going to give the family card to your older sibling, your sibling on the night they were supposed to receive the car, they got drunk and they never showed up. So the family gave you the car instead. And then they ended up kind of glad that they gave it to you because it seems like you'd be the one to do most right by the car. That's how I had to process the Jacob and Esau story, right? Because there was some deception there. And I know God doesn't like a liar, but Jacob did lie when Isaac said he was going blind in his eyes. He said, is this you Esau? And, and Jacob was like, yeah, it's me. He's like, you sound like Jacob though, but you feel like Esau. And Jacob's like, no, it's me. I'm Esau. And so he got the blessing. So let's understand something. Genesis chapter 25, verse 23. There's a prophetic proclamation over Rebecca's womb with her two boys who are fighting inside her. Right. And I thought this was timely because me and my husband want some twins real bad. So I feel like God is preparing us for twins. All right. But here we go. And it says, God told her that two nations are in thy womb. And two manner or two kinds of cultures of people shall be separated from thy bowels, from your body. And the one people, the one people shall be stronger than the other people. And the elder shall serve the younger. Now this message is called the one, the twin, and the shame. So the one, all right, by nicknaming the stronger people the one. And mentioning them first, God is clear that he favored one people before they were even born. 
So the birthright situation is really just a technicality. It was always bound to happen this way, right? But I bring this verse up to show how God had favor for the one as he always leads with the good because that is who and what he is so that we thoroughly understand that Edom and Esau was, was never in line for that full bounty from God. Okay, Esau's whole existence, we have to understand, is simply to further define Jacob's existence and to serve Jacob's purpose and calling over his life. That's the whole purpose of Esau. That's why the older serves the younger. But I'm going to explain it to you even deeper than that. All right, let's talk about twins. We have to understand that the comparative of twins is permanent throughout their whole life. They are going to be called the twins and they're going to be compared. All right. Therefore, this proclamation over Jacob and Esau is never, ever going to fade. It is permanent. It will last as long as they have their names. Right. So the fate of the twins testifies of God's intention, which is to always have them be compared. Right. So for them to be opposite, which is what it said in the proclamation over their lives, that they would have two separate manners. They would be opposite of each other. This is all God's will. All right. So Jacob went on to be the father of the chosen people named after him, who was Israel, after he wrestled with the angel. And Esau, he even made up with his brother technically about this birthright being stolen because they met up after this had happened and they hugged it out, right? But one went on to become the king of Edom, right? And that was, e that was Esau. And the culture of the Edomites was aggressive, to put it lightly. I mean, they were a bit of like the Spartans in nature, right? The Spartans of, of Greek culture, all right? Because if Dolag could slay 85 priests on his own, then I mean, Okay, where did he come from? And since he's an Edomite, Edom represents a nation of hostiles. And it also represents all nations like it. All right. So while the people of Israel represent a nation that thrives despite hostility. So understand that without the position of the two, one could not define the other well enough. If you don't have hostility, you won't be able to define Israel as a nation who doesn't have hostility. Okay. So Esau, again, his whole purpose is to further define Jacob. Okay? So now that we know that Edom had a chip on its shoulder, we can go into Obadiah. All right? I have never been called to the book of Obadiah in my entire life. I didn't even know it existed until this season and this lesson. Okay? But it's there. And it's one chapter. And it's a powerful chapter of 21 verses. And we're going to go through them. Ready? All right. So we look to Obadiah to give us God's view on the hostels of this world. And Obadiah begins with an explanation that pride really pisses God off, right? It's his delivery of God's word that describes the Edomites as having a heart that speaks arrogance. All right. So in Obadiah, God is saying, verse one, we have heard a rumor from the Lord and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. All right? So word from God, you know, by way of the ambassador or representative to the heathen, 
starts with go on and rise up and we're going to rise up against you. Right? Verse 2 says, behold, but look, right? I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. So it says, look, right? It's basically saying, look, I've made you the smallest amongst the heathen, right? And you are held in contempt because that's the meaning of despise. And this is the court verdict happening. Imagine now, Obadiah is a courtroom. God is a judge and Esau is on trial. All right. And so he's being held in contempt right now. All right. And the verdict is going forth and there will be sentencing that will happen after. You can bet your, your bottom dollar on that. All right. But he's saying, rumor has it, you wanted to come up in here and fight. But I can clearly see from the evidence shown that you're not even big enough to really fight. You're not big enough to really, for me to really beat down on. And I'm no bully. That's what God's saying. I've made you small in comparison to the heathens. Right? You're a little thing. And then God starts to peel the layers back from Esau. Verse 3. He says, the pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. Your pride has you fooled, he's saying. You're not my enemy, God is saying. Thou that dwellest in the cliffs or the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, right? That saith, all right, that it's got you telling, since you live up so high, it's got you telling yourself, right? It's got you saying, in his heart, who shall bring me down to the ground? All right, you got your arms in the air. Who going to stop me? All right, who going to check me, boo? That's you, right, Esau? And so even if Esau didn't say that out loud, God heard it because it was in his heart. Remember that, all right? But they live up in these mountains, all right? Hairy like Esau and feeling untouchable. All right, we got more facts in, in verse four. God is peeling him back. He's breaking him down. He says, though thou exalt thyself as the eagle and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence I bring it down. Thence will I bring it down, saith the Lord. So from here on out, he's saying, I'm going to bring you down from your high places that you put yourself in because I never put or meant for you to be there. And because you don't deserve it and because it's really not even you, you don't even belong there. Remember that, too. You put yourself in these high places because truthfully, you don't feel very high. Here we go. He breaks them down even more. He's punking them. He's telling them, I see you. I see who you really are, Issa. Verse five. If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they have not stolen till they had enough? If the gatherers, if grape gatherers came to thee, would they not have let leave some grapes? So if the worst people came to harm you, they do it because you're not built for the evil that's really out here, Esau. That's what he's saying. You're not no threat to nobody. Right? Thieves can rob you in the nighttime. The grape gatherers, they come and they take your food and they don't even leave even a little bit, even some. All right? And six, he says, God says, How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his 
hidden things sort of. So he's like, look, look at you. Because apparently he done broke Issa down. He done hit some type of some type of nerve. Right. I imagine this being where God has said, man, you you small, you small. How are you going to fight someone as big? How are you going to really handle robbers or people? Even if people just came to steal your grace, you know, you can't really beat them because your self-esteem is so low because you've been brought down so low. Right. It's your pride. People who are the most prideful talk real big. Right. And he's like, look, look how look how the things of mighty Esau are now searched out. Look how I found you out. Look how I discovered you. God is peering into the soul of Esau saying you're a bully because you're soft. Look how fast I uncovered the vulnerability in you. You're not ready to fight. All your strength is built in weak things. You're pitiful looking up here in these mountains and acting all tough. All right. Verse seven. He says, all the men of thy confederacy, all your allegiance, all your friends have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat Thy bread have laid a wound under tree. There is none understanding in him. So Edom has gone through hell by the time God is talking to him here. And he's saying, you got no friends. They all betrayed you. The bread, your people, they've been devoured. And there's a, root, a wound at the root of who you are under the tree, right? They damaged you so badly, right? And then after he blows Edom's cover and he realized and he, and he, and he, and he reveals rather that it's, it's been brought to a low amongst everyone like it. Every heathen out of all the heathen, heathens, you're small, right? And so then God speaks on why he let it happen and how, right? And he first starts to talk about how he could handle this in verse eight. He says, shall I not in that day even destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of the Mount of Esau and thy mighty men, O Taman, shall be dismayed, distressed, honey. That's what dismayed means. To the end that every one of the Mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. All right, so God is kind of talking in backwards, right? To say that, he could do this to you, right? These are rhetorical questions, right? But it's like, you know what I can do, right? You could put your money down that a sentence is about to go forth. We're still on trial here. And God is just explaining to Esau, listen, I see you differently. Before I render my verdict, I'm going to let you know that as the evidence came about and these, one, these, these horrible things are being said of you, I see something in you that, um, that I want to make sure you see in yourself. That you didn't fool the court of God with your, with your, with your antics, right? So, you know, these are just the words that come after the crimes are read off in the courtroom so that you know your options of punishment. So you just got to imagine in court, this is the judge, God saying, Esau, I find you guilty of pride in the first degree and arrogance that's punishable by and then here we are, all the punishable things, punishable by destruction of the wise and even the ultimate cutoff by slaughter is possible. All right. But now it's time to sentence Esau. Right. So he says, Esau, you've committed a crime of pride and arrogance. 
in the first degree and I could cut you all off and I could uh, 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 just take all of your teachers, all of the wise, all of your priests. But um, instead, here's my verdict. Here's my sentencing. All right. You're guilty. In verse 10, it says, for thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee and thou shalt be cut off forever. So the punishment is shame first. Remember that. But oh child, hell is an eternity away from God. I say that all the time. Friends can turn their back on you. Family be looking away all the time. But if God cuts you off, child, I'm finna cry just thinking the thought, right? For God to cut you off, that means he ceases your line. That means he devours your name. That means you cease to exist. You'll have no more children. The lineage of you is dismissed, right? God straight abandoned the line of Esau for his internal arrogance and his lifetime battle with his brother. All right. So take note that Esau didn't actually and literally commit a violent attack on Jacob. Not literally, as far as I know. But he had to have thought it or had given life to it. Because people like Doag, whose nature stems from his lineage. Because as a man thinketh in his heart, that's Proverbs 23, 7. So is he. Right. So. Edom is being convicted for the thoughts of its heart. That in its heart is very real. Y'all got to hold that. Because some of us believe, you know, some of us who have been brought up in the church, especially churches that condemn others. Um, some of us believe that God sees that nasty thought you had and that you're going to pay for the thought. And some authority in your life might have told you that you're sinning for the thought you had. And while we should do our best to protect our thoughts, and make sure that they're positive. It's really the thought of your heart's desire that's in question and on trial with God, right? So grant yourself the grace if you had a bad thought, all right? Because especially if it's not your heart's desire, right? So that you can properly combat the thought. It's going to be real hard for you to combat the thought if you already beating yourself up, right? You need God to read your heart while you pray against that thought. So that he can redeem you and help you redeem yourself. Right. All right. But let me keep going. I got off on a little tangent there. All right. So how did God truly know that Esau wasn't of a righteous mind towards his brother? Well, there's evidence and we're in court. So exhibit A is verse 11, which will stand as the eyewitness testimony today. Verse 11. God says. In the day that thou stoodest. On the other side, like when Doag stood working for Saul and loyal to Saul, right? That resulted in Doag, an Edomite, slaying Israel's priests, all right? So in that day that Edom stood on the other side, all right? In the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, and the King James Version defines forces as substance. All right. So that's the stuff that makes us who we are. Right. It's the thing that makes Esau who he is. It's what makes Jace, uh, Jacob who he is. All right. So it's in the day that the strangers took Israel, his body, his life captive 
for slavery and death. All right, that God is talking about. And foreigners entered into Israel's gates, his gates, and cast lots, which are great burdens, upon Jerusalem. Even thou, even you, Esau, you was as one of them. You were, you were like the foreigners. You took part in the burdens. And that was not what you should have been doing as they came down on your brother. But what did Esau do though? We know that we know that Doeg slayed them a uh, them a uh, priest. And I'm using that as the example because it's the clearest example of, of, of the, the treachery, right? Verse 12 says that but thou should shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither should thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither should thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. So, God is saying it wasn't the time to say, shoot, if that was me, I wouldn't have went. They got the right twin because Esau don't play that. All right? It wasn't the time to do that, Esau. It wasn't the time to look at your brother like he was a nigga in the street. Okay? And when he got, and when his son got locked up in that situation, these are examples I'm giving y'all, trying to break it down, make it attainable, right? That wasn't the time to point fingers and make jokes. It wasn't the time to celebrate. All right? And if we just stick to that example of Doeg, right? It wasn't the time to give the Edomites props for their military training that enabled them to slave 85 priests, okay? That wasn't the time to be like, y'all some bad man pajamas if one of y'all can slay 85 of your brother's people. That wasn't the time to gloat and speak proudly in the day of distress, okay? But what else? Because notice how there's a culmination of poor behaviors that testify to the guilt of Esau's people's heart, all right? These weren't just thoughts, all right? Verse 13, it goes on to say what else he was doing that he shouldn't have done. God says, thou shouldest not have entered into the gate of my people, Israel, your brother, in the day of their calamity. Yeah, thou should not, shouldest not look on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor should or nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. So again, we're talking about substance. And that goes all the way back to me opening about Malachi and, and, and God wanting our substance. He wanting, he wanting our body as substance for him, right? This is the body, all right? So it's saying you should not have been there. You shouldn't have entered the gate. You shouldn't have seen it. You shouldn't have looked on their affliction. And you shouldn't have touched them, which means Doeg should not have slayed my priests. I don't care if I'm mad at them or not. Okay? Here we go. He did some more stuff that he shouldn't have done. All right? And I believe he's still referring to the Doeg situation. Because in 14, God says, Neither shouldest thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. His meaning those of the Israelites, those of your brother, 
that did escape. And that's talking about Abiathar, right? Because Abiathar, the son of Abimelech, who was slain by Doag, he was one of those 85 priests that was slain. He ran to David, right? And got away. And David said that he would be safe with him after this slaughter, right? So he's talking about that. But what happened was the Edomite, Doeg, was snitching on where David was, right? And he maintained his orders to seek him out and seek out Abiathar and try to kill them. They want David's life and they wanted Abiathar's life. David confirms that, right? So God is upset that your Edomites really was working on the other side with Saul. And he, he, he's, he's, he's explaining this to Esau, but for a reason, okay? So it said, and it, he continues to do things he shouldn't have done. He said, neither shouldest thou have delivered up those, delivered up, meaning given up, shown where? Those of his, those of your brother that did not remain in the day of distress, those who had ran away. So you shouldn't have snitched on David either, okay? You were Edomite, Doeg. And you snitched and told Saul where David was. You, you traded, you was a traitor to your brother. You done killed the priest from your brother. You done told them where David was, my beloved David. You wild out, really treated your brother mad bad. And this is why I'm going to sentence you to some things here. Okay? Because God is saying you were participating. You were helping people get taken. My people get taken. You were committing genocide. All right. You were preventing the escapes, Esau. Really? This is what you're doing? This is how you feel about your brother? You letting Doag snitch and tell Saul where David is? This is what y'all up to? Y'all Edomites? Right? 15. Let me just remind you, God is saying, for the day of the Lord is near upon the heathen. All right. And as thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward, your punishment, shall return upon thine own head. So what you thought was good is going to actually be your punishment. So God said, you showed me how I should treat you, Esau. You think it's sweet till it's your son and your people. But I'm going to show you how it feels to be abandoned by your loved one. Right? Now is it starting to make sense why God is cutting Esau off, cutting his line off? The abandonment he wanted Esau to feel. Because Esau abandoned his brother when they came down on him. When they came down on Israel and they did what they did to Israel, it was Edomites committing treason against the Israelites. And God is, is addressing that right now. How you treated your brother was foul and I should treat you the same way. But I'm God and I'm not as foul as you. So that's why in verse 16, God says, for as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. So the punishment is forced repentance through shame. Okay? Shame, God is saying, will bring a heathen to the springs of the holy mountain of God, Mount Zion. To fill themselves with the righteousness that they lack in their ways. 
so that they will be made new and be like the old of them never ever existed. Okay? So this wipeout that the priest preached to Israel that happened for the Edomites is not the wipeout that they think. Okay? It's a transformation. See? God is good. He is a reformer. God's destruction is even good. Still. Because just as Esau had to drink from God's living water to be transformed in this verse 16. And when we say Esau, we say Edom because they're the same. And its people are the same. And every heathen will do the same. And they'll transform as if a heathen never existed. And heathens are just people who don't obey a religion, by the way. Okay? So, this is what the God we love can do. This is what he set out to do. This is his whole point. This is who he has always been. Okay? A transformative God. A redeemer. All right? Verse 17. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. And there shall be holiness. And the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. All right. So God is saying Jacob ain't going to stay captive. He will possess everything that belongs to him. All right. He will. Because what you did won't ruin him, Esau. So you can go ahead and let that go. And the reason why he's saying that is not to rub it in. He's saying it so that even after your help to render him um, in affliction or as captive, it won't work. And he's saying that not to rub it into Esau, but to give Esau what Esau will need to forgive himself. You see that? God is saying what you did was foul, but you can still because he's dealing with a broken down Esau right now. And he don't want Esau to feel, feel bad. God is not going to bully Esau. He's not here to fight him. Remember, he did not come to fight him because he's small right now. He ain't got no friends. He's abandoned. Okay. He, 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 he ain't got nothing to fight with. So he's in a bad shape right now. And the last thing you need when you're feeling low about yourself is somebody to tell you you're even lower. So God's not here to do that. He's just telling you that you didn't ruin your brother. You can forgive yourself because I'm still going to bless your brother. He's going to be okay, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure he's okay, okay? So you can, you can go ahead and, and forgive yourself. So whatever you did to people in your past right now that makes you guilty, that makes you feel some type of way about yourself. That keeps you from going to seek God's face because you're ashamed. It is precisely the shame that's supposed to bring you to God. So that he can redeem you and renew you. And don't worry about those people you hurt and harmed. Because your prayers for them. Are going to help God continue to do what was always meant for them anyway. You can't change it. God's word is final on their life. All right. So God says to the heathens, which is the Edomites and all of those like them, that you was wrong as hell, right? But God has a bigger mountain than Mount Esau. And it's the mountain of heaven, right? Esau cannot reverse God's will for his brother, even if he wanted to. And he can't even reverse God's will for himself. So God is saying, here's what's going to happen. 
the possessions of heaven belong to the children of Israel. Just so I'm clear with you, Esau. And I know that you're prideful and you're narcissistic because you actually think of yourself as low, right? Most narcissists are egotistical and narcissistic because they don't have good self-esteem. And they need to self-aggrandize themselves to feel better about how low they actually feel about themselves. All right? But he may feel bad about himself and he may see himself as low because God said you have to serve your little brother, right? That was the proclamation over his life in the womb of his mother, Rebecca. But that's not how God sees you. Just because you saw yourself low for having to serve your brother does not mean you're low to God. All right? God brought Esau lower to a low just to humble him. He said, I did it to humble you, Esau, so you can get what I have for you in the springs of Mount Zion. So now you may love yourself better after you drink and are restored. But Jacob will still be the one. And you are still the other. Only this time, you're going to have everything you need to know as to why I chose your brother. Even if it just boils down to because he's not you or like you or would do the things that you have done. That would be reason enough and reason that you can now understand. Okay? So remember how we heard God speak of how he, he could or he should destroy the wives of Edom. We started this off by talking about what God could do as a verdict. And he said that he could destroy their understanding. This is how he wants them to understand before they come to him. Remember how we read it in the Malachi? How God doesn't want blind followers, but he wants active faith-based citizens. So he took this time to explain to the heathens, to the Edomites, what he meant by serving your little brother. I mean, right? That's what he wanted to explain to Esau, who has made a mess of his life trying to avoid this service to his brother, which is really his fate. He's trying to explain why he wanted him to serve because there's blessings in the service. Let me explain it to y'all in verse 18. All right, we're still in Obadiah. Here we go. He says, and the house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau for stubble and they shall kindle in him and devour them and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken it. All right. So where the fire devours the stubble, the fire of Jacob, the fire of Joseph devours the stubble that is Esau. It moves over it and it consumes it. And the stubble then gives life to the fire. Can y'all see that? And this is God's way of saying that the conversion of the heathen will wipe out the heathens. It will wipe out Esau as an opposer of his brother because the heathens punishment will be their shame that leads them to the living water that causes them to transform into Jacob's nation. Which leads them to serve Jacob and Jacob's God. As the requirement for their redemption for the things they have been convicted of in the court of God's law today. All right. In this moment, it is the stipulation of the court. As proclaimed even prior to their birth and the fulfilling of a prophecy 
a prophetic word from God to Rebecca about her sons, right? So the court is recommending a community service to Esau in the kingdom of God alongside his brother to prove that he's had a change of heart by drinking from the mountain, the holy mountain that God mentions, right? And the light of every humble soul, right? Is, is going to be what, what Esau then represents. The humbled souls who have gone through, the heathens who have gone through. So no, Esau's name will not go up in lights. But he will still be part of the kingdom. He does still matter to God. He is still valuable to God. What Esau thought of himself is not what God thought of him. Right? So Esau is not the name with the promise and the deliverance association. No, that's not who he is. Right? This whole thing is a foreshadowing of God's inclusion of the Gentiles in the covenant of the New Testament, which is to come. Jacob's God will abide in every heathen that brings their shame to the mountain of Zion, which is another name for heaven's mountain, and grant them the promise of Israel by rebirthing them into Israelites under Esau's brother Jacob. Right? So yes, Esau's name will drift out. It will be cut off. It will be irrelevant. That now Esau, who is humbled, can truly understand Yes, they'll still exist, but they will become one family under Jacob. All right. Verse 19 says. And they of the south shall possess the Mount of Esau. And of the and and they of the plain of Philist, of the Philistines. And they shall possess the field of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. And then Benjamin shall possess Gilead. All right. So let's see what happened there. They are the children of Joseph. All right. Because Jacob and Rachel had two sons in direct lineage of Isaac and Abraham. Right. So Joseph and Benjamin are their two sons. Right. And Joseph became king of Egypt through his brother's betrayal. Right. And because of Jacob's brother's betrayal, Jacob is a king in the kingdom of heaven. All right. So when we know this and we reread it, we see God is simply explaining why Esau is unworthy of consideration in the kingdom of God as a father of God's people because of his actions and because of the pride he exhibited. Right. But. He's just saying you simply did, don't have the heart for it until I clean it. But if I clean it. That makes you one of Jacob's, right? So by accepting the fact that he didn't have the heart that God wanted or that God desires him to have, he's made like those who honor God because he humbles himself in his shame. And therefore, he can become unidentifiable when he's surrounded by the chosen people of God because he too will look like one of the chosen. Right. So they, Joseph and Jacob's babies, are going to flame up 
and devour the people of the plains and the fields and inhabit them. But a new promised land, Eden 2.0, is going to be handed over to Benjamin, right? The baby of Israel. And this is a powerful gift because Gilead had a healing balm. And from what I read, there's lots to be desired in that land in general. Gilead is always spoken about as, as a land that was valuable. All right. But in Zechariah chapter 10, verse 10, it was a place that uh, the people of God were said to return to. So that's why I call it Eden 2.0. All right. It's the intention for the people of God. So this is God bringing it to Esau and breaking it to him that his role in the play is not the lead, but there are no small parts, only small actors, as we say in the theater, right? Verse 21, I'm, on, I'm 20, I'm almost finished, right? So it says, and the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites. So your, your wife's children are going to be for your brother too. Okay, I mean, and so even unto Zarephath, the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Shepharad, shall possess the cities of the south. All right. So this is what helps me understand that the body will be pulled from many places. Jerusalem and Israel, its leader, um, have both experienced bondage. And these are the Hebrews from different lands, but the same family. And they will all be liberated according to this verse to me, and possess the lands that are mentioned in the verse. But he had to let Esau know that even your wife's land is going to be swallowed up by my people. All of this is for your brother. Everything I am doing is for your brother and his people, based on the promise I've made with your forefather, Abraham. But you are going to love it here, God is saying to Esau, because we just got to take that jealousy out of your heart and give you a clean heart, and you're going to love it here. So that's a dope thought as we as we see God make the distinction of which captives are going to inhabit and, and where they'll be in the end, right? And then the final verse is verse 21. And it says, and saviors, deliverers. This is a hint. Remember, the Messiah is not here yet. All right. So this is just a foreshadowing that the Messiah is coming, that my, that my will is going to be done. God says. And saviors, deliverers, shall come up on Mount Zion, where y'all are right now, where y'all have now become like me, to judge the Mount of Esau, to judge the heathens that have been transformed, to see if their hearts are redeemed, to see if they drank from the, from the springs of Mount Zion. Right? So verse 21 says, And the saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The kingdom shall be God's. Cue lights, fade to black and hold, curtain. That's how Obadiah ends. Super powerful, right? But there was so much in this one chapter book of Obadiah. And what I took from it is that our shame is punishment enough to God. Unless we choose to use our pride over it and be cut off, it's enough to bring us to him, right? So the heathen is a person who has no religion that they hold to, 
right? And they will be judged according to their authentic hearts rather than their ability to obey a religion. And they will come to possess what is of Mount Zion. And the children of Esau are just the children who went their own way. Without a birthright and a covenant with God, they leaned on their own thought. And shame is what brings them to the God who created the commandments for his chosen priesthood, who do have religious rules to follow, right? Shame from the way they acted in spiritual law, right? Shame from the way they treated their spiritual leaders, the people they're supposed to serve, the Israelites, right? That is what is going to come get them to God to be converted. These are the hairy people of the mountains who were to be converted by the fire of Jacob and Rachel's kids and drink of the living water and be convicted in the spirit by their shame and abandonment of their brother. And then they're going to be renewed and transformed as those who serve the leaders of God's great kingdom by inhabiting the earth, right? So hence the frame in the Beatitudes, it's the meek that shall inherit the earth. The meek are the people who were brought low. The meek are the humbled, right? The heathen, the Edomites, those of Esau, right? The ones who had to come down from their own understanding, thinking they knew all the answers. Those who, who don't quite go to God to see what he wants for them, but rather raise themselves up really high so that they feel good about themselves, right? Instead of seeing how good they could feel, hearing what God feels and sees for them. All right. There's many people I know like that who are in such search for the truth that they've gone outside of the church because the, the priests who got cussed out in Malachi just can't be trusted to interpret God's will the right way. Right. And because the priests couldn't be trusted to interpret God's will the right way, God decided to give a whole new way, a whole new method. In which part the indwelling of the Holy Spirit can visit and dwell within the heathen. To have his own relationship with God. To be able to talk to God directly through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit teach you the ways of God. And educate you that you might have understanding and not be blind. Or lame or sick when you present the best of yourself to God to be meat in the storehouse. All right? These are the, the meek are the people who are honored by their service to God, right? They become God's people. They are his, they, his eyes and heart are set on them, right? But it's in his father's house that are many mansions. While the meek inherit the earth, it's in the father's house that the mansions exist. And those mansions are for the children of Israel, for the new Hebrews, right? And God will keep his word to them because he's not a man that he should lie. So imagine where I am right now. I thought this lesson was about handing over your prayers to God and believing, right? But I see now that it was only the beginning of what I was going to take from this walk that I did with God. Because God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. And everyone who brings their very best self right, to God, as a living sacrifice, will reap an inheritance fit for royalty. And the first, y'all, shall indeed be the last in the end. 
And if you don't believe me, you can go to Obadiah and ask Esau, who was born first. Yet in the end, they are the heathens judged on the mount last to serve. Okay? God bless y'all. Thank you for listening. Listening. Glory to God. I hope he had his way with your heart. I hope in this moment you feel refreshed and renewed knowing that God, even if you think low of yourself, doesn't have a low place for you. At, at the basis of it all, you'll inherit the earth at minimum if you simply go to him with your shame. Drink from the fountain of heaven and allow it to renew and clean your heart. God bless you. I love you. God loves you more. See you next time. The book of Joe is but a portion of a family ministry called the Black Love Smiths. To follow the Black Love Smiths, you can do so at Black Love Smiths on Instagram or Facebook. To get into contact with Joe, please email bookofjoe at gmail.com. God bless you.